This is Crazy Captain Steven, here to introduce a five-part episode from the 1973-74 to 74 Mystery and Suspense radio show, Zero Hour, hosted by Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame, who wrote some Zero Hour scripts. This one, however, called Air Hunters, as in an heir to a fortune, was written by the prolific Bill S. Ballinger. He authored 30 books and wrote 81 radio scripts and 150 teleplays, including seven for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. This story involves murder, greed, and redemption, with some amusing dated cultural references, including the line, Well, look who's here, Mark Spitz. You see, at the beginning, you learn that the protagonist was thrown into a swimming pool by a mobster. When they meet again, the mobster refers to him as Mark Spitz, because Mark Spitz was the nine-time Olympic swimming champ, most famous in the 1972 Olympics. The initial format of Zero Hour included five half-hour installments, that included with commercials, of an episode each weekday beginning Monday. This proved unpopular to some radio listeners, because if they missed one day, let's say Friday, then they missed the ending. That was, of course, way before we had the delightful luxury of podcasts. The format was changed the second season and five different episodes or stories per week would air. Mutual Broadcasting Services Zero Hour was the first radio drama to air since Yours Truly Johnny Dollar's last episode in 1962 when his action-packed expense account finally ran dry after more than 12 years. The Zero Hour series sparked a small revival of the old-time radio genre. For example, Hyman Brown, who created the original Inner Sanctum Mysteries in 1941, recycled some elements from that show for his CBS Radio Mystery Theater, launched in 1974 to compete with Zero Hour. This series actually found a larger audience than Zero Hour. And, speaking of recycling old-time radio elements, Air Hunters features Edgar Bergen, who treats us to his golden voice. And also from the old-time radio era, playing a small role is June Foray, who is still alive and aged 96. Known for her versatile work in voice on par with Mel Blanc, she appeared on Lux Radio Theater and others. She may be best known as the voice of Rocky the Flying Squirrel on those popular Bullwinkle cartoons, where she also played Natasha, Boris's sidekick with the Russian accent. Also, listen for Valerie Perrine, who would one year later portray the wife of controversial comedian Lenny Bruce in Bob Fosse's film Lenny. She was nominated for an Academy Award as Best, Best Actress in that film. Starring with Edgar Bergen in this episode are Ken Berry, who is now 80, best known for his television roles on Mayberry RFD and Mama's Family, and also starring Joanne Worley, now 76. She is best known as the outrageous and shrill buxom brunette on Roan and Martin's Laughing with that trademark laugh. That was her laugh. I always felt that Ken Berry and Joanne Worley were underappreciated as fine stage actors, which I believe they were. She still is. 
Perhaps, like Russell Johnson, the professor on Gilligan's Island, Barry and Worley are forever anchored in people's minds unfairly as dated, cheesy TV stars. Ken Barry served in the Special Service Corps under Sergeant Leonard Nimoy and toured bases entertaining troops. Spock was impressed with Barry and later introduced him around in Hollywood and New York, an enterprise that helped Ken Barry launch his successful career. This is Crazy Captain Steven, logging off. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's sound portrait of an unlikely hero. The Air Hunters. Starring Ken Berry. Joanne Worley. And Edgar Bergen. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. This week, a story about the eternal optimist, someone who always wakes up on the right side of the bed even if the right side happens to be against a wall. It's the story of Dean Quinn, a young man born as a member of the human race, a species whose behavior patterns leave him in a state of bewilderment. It's a world perhaps gone mad that's best treated as a joke, one continuous stream of one-line gags. And the funny thing of it is, Dean Quinn gets along fine, fine until he awakens one evening in a most peculiar waterbed, and awakens to the realization that he himself has been playing straight man in a bad joke. The punchline is murder. Our story this week, The Air Hunters, begins after this word. Picture this. A clear, star-filled, windy desert night just outside of Palm Springs. A dirt road leading off the highway, meandering through sand and sage up toward the base of the towering San Jacinto Mountains. Nestled within an oasis of tall palms, a single house, a veritable hideaway. The inside lights are on, but the house deserted. A sliding glass door is open, leading to the swimming pool. In the shadow of the diving board, the shapely body of a beautiful woman, floating face down. In the shallow end, a second body, a young man bleeding from the head and for the moment alive. Oh, 
Where am I? Oh. I... What am I doing here? Ow. Oh, must have gotten zapped in the head. How did a nice young fella like me get into a spot like this? I mean, my God, she's dead. And I'm supposed to be. What happened? What started it? I was in New York, okay? And I got sick with pneumonia, right? And my friendly physician said, go west to the warmth, okay? So I leave the Big Apple, and I stick out my thumb, and I head for the land of sunshine and movie stars. I arrive with a grand total of $3.68 to my name. My name, Dean Quinn. Yeah, it's all coming back. Boy, oh, think, think, you needed money. The superb printing company in Hollywood is a, a box-like brick building hiding beneath a coat of peeling pink plaster. There was a sign in the window. Bill Passer wanted. I didn't know the first thing about passing bills, but I was willing to learn. I went in. It smelled exactly like a printing plant should. Ink, type cleaner, and hot metal. A fat guy was running around a small, flatbed press, all hot and sweaty, with ink smeared on his big horn-rimmed glasses. The press was churning out handbills printed on vivid green paper. The fat guy was looking over his Coke bottle lenses at me. Are you the boss? Yeah. Mallop. Uh, Mr. Mallop, my name's Dean Quinn. Not Mallop. Mallop. Malcolm Lapp. Oh, sorry. It's sort of hard to hear in here. Uh, you need a guy to pass out handbills? Hey, ever stuffed them before? Oh, I'm an old stuffer from way back. What's the pay? Four bucks a thousand. But if I find places been skipped, I don't pay. Well, I don't blame you. Hey, you, you got a bag? Uh, like a newspaper carrier? No. Well, I'll rent you one. Dollar deposit. Now, just you step over here. Right here. Yeah, you see this wall map? Yeah. Along here. You see? This is your area. I was really hustling. Didn't even have a place to stay, and I already had a job. It takes a gross amount of walking to stuff a lousy thousand handbills. I just about finished the last of my supply when I came to a dingy little bungalow court called the El Cairo. Nothing Egyptian about it. It just might have been built about the same time as the pyramids. I padded right into the courtyard, surrounded on three sides by grimy, white-framed bungalows. Cracked walls, brown walks, dead bushes, and a birdbath no self-respecting sparrow would use. I stuffed, crammed, and pushed a bill into every tiny mailbox on each of the little stoops. On the door in the last bungalow was a card which said, Manager. I had just left one of my green specials and started for the street when I heard her. Wait a minute. Uh, who, me? Are you talking to me, lady? Uh, come here, I want to talk to you. I just stood there for a minute with a big, stupid grin on my face, staring at this girl. 
And I mean a big girl. Six one in her stocking feet. And she was barefooted. I don't mean fat. I mean she's just big. Big all over, but in proportion. Nice features, just larger than life. And really neato kind of red hair she was wearing up, but it kept falling down. And very nice legs. Great gams. And displaying outstanding size up top. <laughs> she was pretty. About my age, too, but I had the feeling she needed a man more like something off Mount Rushmore. Hello, girl. You can't be making much passing these things out. It's lowly, but honest. Better than selling violets or making charcoal. Well, how'd you like to make a few extra dollars? Dollars? I presume they're a form of currency unknown to me at the present time. Got a minute? Come inside. I walked fly-like into her parlor. The room was something straight out of a mail-order catalog, a dream of stained furniture, part wood and part plastic. I eased down on the edge of an imitation leather sofa and watched while she folded back the sleeves of her caftan. I'm Miss Temple. Formally. I'm Mr. Quinn. I own El Cairo Court. Oh, that's nice. Well, my father left it to me when he died, nearly three years ago. You know, it's too much for a woman to handle alone plumbing and patching up things, nailing stuff together, listening to the tenants complain. Uh, you, you said something about me making money? Oh, yes. Number nine bungalow. It's been closed for two years, and it's filled with trash and junk. It has to be cleaned up and stuff thrown out. I don't have a rubbish disposal service. Mm, and I don't have a car. Could you borrow one? I doubt it. Well, do you have a driver's license? From New York. Hmm. I have a car you could use. Oh, of course, I couldn't pay you very much. Uh, how much is much? Ten dollars. Well, I know it would cost 25 to hire a man with a truck. Uh, look, this job, passing bills, it's still good for a few more days. If it's okay to clean out the bungalow on my own time, if oh. I get around to it, then, well, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> good. On one condition. Well, if there's anything worth selling, you can have it. No, sell it yourself and keep the money. It sounds good, but I'll have to stay in number nine until I get it cleaned out. It's too far between my, uh, my hotel and the printing company and here to get around you. Oh, the place is an awful mess. Well, look, if I can't stay, I couldn't take the job. Well, all right. If you can stand it, you can stay, Mr. Quinn. It's Dean. What's your name besides Temple? You can call me Beth. You got yourself a deal, girl -o. I finished delivering the handbills and made it up to Griffith Park and got my knapsack out from under the water pipe where I'd left it. Back at El Cairo Court, Bungalow 9, the heavy work began. Man, you never flashed anything like it. A solid layer of dust over everything. Old cartons, dozens of them. And stacks all the way to the ceiling of newspapers and magazines and paper bags and all kinds of junk you wouldn't believe. All of it worthless. There were no sheets on the bed, only dust. The mattress was pretty lumpy, but soft. At least there weren't any cockroaches. Boy, oh, I hate those things. All those legs. Yeah. I brought you some fresh sheets and pillowcases. Oh, thanks. Who was living here? A tribe of Turkoman sheep herders? An old man. Edgar Rhine. He died. 
They sure didn't take it with him. Did anyone ever go through this stuff before? Oh, I guess so. Well, after Mr. Ryan passed away two years ago, some man came out from the tax assessor's office. He looked through it and then went away. He didn't run away screaming? I've prepared my repast for the evening. You're welcome to join me. When I got over to her bungalow, supper was ready and waiting. The table was set for two. Meat and potatoes. My kind of repast. I could tell she was taking a shine to me. I don't want to brag, but I just have a way with women. Up close, she was better looking than I thought. About a half-size model would have been perfect. Did you have enough to eat? Plenty. And it was plenty good, too, girl. It's all right to call me Vera. Yeah, I know. Tell me about yourself, Dean. Mm, what's to tell? Where are you from? As of last week, New York. The Big Apple. Oh, New York. Once I hoped I could go to New York, try to get a job there. I dreamed of being a showgirl. You know, one of those big ones parading around in a gorgeous costume with feathers and sequins. Why didn't you? I didn't have the money. Besides, I didn't have any talent. I can't sing or dance. Well, maybe not, but you're big enough. What? Oh, no, I mean, uh, I mean you've, you've got the build for it. You're right. That's the trouble. I'm just too damn big. Men don't like women as big as I am. Terrible thing is, I'm still a woman, but they think I'm a freak or something. Let's not talk about it. Okay. Let's talk about old Edgar Rhine. If he's been dead for two years, how come you haven't cleaned out number nine before? Well, a couple of years before my father died, Dad needed money pretty bad, and Mr. Rhine offered to take a five-year lease and pay the rent in advance at a 25% discount, so Dad took it. About a year after Dad, Mr. Rhine died, too. So I just locked up the place for the rest of the time. Sounds like Mr. Ryan had a lot of money. Not really. Oh, of course, he was a miser and saved everything. But all the county found was less than $5,000 in a bank book he had in his pocket when they took him to the hospital. How old was he? Um, 75, maybe. He died from a stroke. Coffee? Uh, no. No, I'd better start dealing off those cartons. You know, like a few here and a few there in the right places. I'll help you. Beth drove her thinning set of treads down back alleys while I scouted around for those big green metal bins they collect trash in. I got rid of eight cartons and six stacks of magazines for the evening. Ten thousand dollars, ten thousand, and another, and oh, 
<laughs> Boy, oh, your ship has come in. I sat on the bed in that miserable little room, laughing and having a great time thumbing through my latest find. Each book was credited with a deposit of 10,000 bucks, a total of $100,000, but not in the name of Edgar Rhine. They all had similar initials, Edward A. Rankin, Elmer B. Raymond, Elgin C. Reed, and so on. And there was only one savings book to a bank, 10 different banks. I looked inside the plastic envelope again, and I found a brittle yellow newspaper clipping. It said, Mrs. Etta Ryan Martin, 28, of 119 Turner Street, died yesterday after a long illness. She is survived by her husband, Charles K. Martin, and her daughter, Helen. Services will be held at 2 p.m. Thursday at the Willow Chapel Funeral Home. The clipping had no date and no town where it had been published. I turned it over, and on the back was the name of a store from a corner of an ad, Sabins. Although I realized it was sort of a lousy thing to do, I decided not to tell Beth. Now, I'm as honest as the next guy, but I figured this was a special case. Besides, she'd said uh, anything I found cleaning out the bungalow I could keep. So, at least for now, I'd keep the discovery to myself. were never spoken. I'll be right in. Coffee's ready. Help yourself to orange juice and toast. Oh, good grits, pretty lady. You know, Beth, you look great in the morning. Oh, Dean, you're making me blush. <laughs> uh, can I borrow your car today? Aren't you going to work? Sure, later. Then why do you need the car? Oh, you know, I thought maybe I'd start the day right by unloading some more of that old man's trash. But it isn't dark. You're liable to get in trouble. I'll be careful. All right, take it. Thanks. Um, incidentally, do you know if Edgar Rhine left a will? Mm, I don't think so. That's what the assessor was looking for and didn't find. Mm. Did the old boy ever have any visitors or relatives? I can't remember anyone. After he died, didn't anyone ever come to ask for him, make any inquiries about him? Not that I know of. Seems to me you're asking an awful lot of questions about him. No, I'm just wondering. Thought maybe they wanted his uh, his clothes or stuff or something. Even so, you've been awfully interested for somebody who didn't know him. Is something bothering you? Who, well, me? He didn't finish your toast. Well, I don't like the crust. Ah, uh, well, I forgot to run. Just to make it look good in case Beth was watching, I tossed a few bundles of magazines into the car. Old Man Ryan's golden geese were tucked securely in my inside coat pocket. My heart was beating against them. Then I took off for the superb printing company and my separation pay. I dumped the magazines in a big green bin out behind the brick building and went in. Delivered, kid? You bet. Here's my bag back. I won't need it anymore. <laughs> Too tough for you, huh? <laughs> uh, it's my feet. Uh, I wear orthopedic shoes. Can I have my money? Uh, here. Don't spend it all in one place. Wait, this is only two bucks. Where's the rest? Well, first I have to see if you delivered them all. Come back in a few days and pick up your check. 
Oh, forget it. I won't need it anyway. I converted the two dollars to gasoline and drove Beth's old crate to Universal City. Besides the film studios and the tour, Universal City features a number of other businesses housed in a couple of office buildings. The one I wanted was Clarence J. Walden and Associates. Walden was famous for digging up missing heirs. He worked on a commission basis up to 40%. I figured since this was my first time, I'd work for less. It was a large office with half a dozen desks and secretaries. Walden himself had a private office. His personal secretary, a nice gal named Nora, showed me in. Walden was a, a nervous, fidgety, middle-aged man. Slightly bald, and he wore glasses. There were rows of playing cards spread out on his desk. He played solitaire all through my introduction. Yes, as you see, uh, Red King, if I could just free this pile... Uh, what, what can I do for you, Mr. Quinn? Mr. Walden, these are my credentials. Photostats, of course. I don't want you to think I'm some nut off the street. Uh, B.A., pre-law, hmm. University of Wisconsin. Honorable Discharge U.S. Army, Fort Dix, New Jersey. Yes, Judge Advocate General's Corps, because of my slight legal background. I spent my hitch doing just, uh, oh, you know, ordinary investigations. Uh, well, what's this student ID card? Columbia University. One year to go in law school. I had to drop out this semester, but I'll be back next year to graduate. Now, why I'm here? Uh, to make a claim of some kind. To find an heir. I happen to know of an estate worth $100,000 in cash. No one else even knows it exists. Not even the state. Yeah, lots of rumors about lost estates. When we investigate, they don't pan out. Oh, this one will. I have proof. It's like I said, uh, lots of rumors about estates. Oh, this one's no rumor. Mm, well, it is until I see some proof. You know, I'll, uh, I'll need a small stipend for my services. Mm. Say, uh, 150 a week plus expenses and, oh, 25% of whatever you get. Let's see, one red king. <laughs> Say, a hundred a week? Seventy-five a week, drawing account plus expenses for one year against your finder's fee. Take it or leave it. I'll take it. Smart nose, that's me. A waiter inner where others more sensible would fear to tread. But not me, not old Dean, no sir. With me, it's just one death-defying idiocy after the other. And this time, I pushed to the limit. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Air Hunters. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. The Air Hunters was written by Bill S. Ballinger. Ken Berry is Dean. Joanne Worley is Beth. And Edgar Bergen is Walden. Featured in the cast is Sidney Miller as Lack. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. 
Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Q. Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's sound portrait of an unlikely hero. The Air Hunters. Starring Ken Berry, Joanne Worley, and Edgar Bergen. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. mid-twenties, a third-year law student, charming, cheery, and suffering from chronic pneumonia. He looked for and found a silver lining in his cloudy health. He called it California and went there. He found a job passing handbills door-to-door at a rate of four dollars per thousand. He found a girl, Beth Temple, tall, very, owner by inheritance of El Cairo Bungalow Court in Hollywood, and alone. Dean found a home, bungalow number nine, and he found upon waking a lump in his mattress. Ten hidden bank books belonging to Edgar Rhine, the late former tenant, and representing a lump sum of $100,000. Ten bank books, an old newspaper clipping, and an idea to find the rightful heir, and perhaps some spending money as well. Dean Quinn found a lot of things. He must have. Because someone is trying to kill him for it. The air hunters will continue in a moment.
lucky. If you'd fallen into the deep end where there isn't a step to keep you from sinking, you'd be as dead as she is. But... But how? Walden. I remember going to see Clarence Walden. Now, why had I done that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Edgar Ryan's bank books. I had to find the missing heir. Clarence Walden's offer of a drawing account plus expenses was one I couldn't refuse. My lightning-quick mathematical mind calculated I stood to make $10,000 if Edgar Ryan's rightful heir could be located. I showed Walden what we had to go on for openers. Yeah. What do you make of that? Helen Martin, safe and store, Willow Chapel Funeral Home. Hmm. Any idea what year this was published or in what city? Not yet, but I intend to find out. Oh, uh, well, you did investigative work in the Army, so go ahead. I'll leave you pretty much on your own. But there are a couple of shortcuts in this business that are handy to know. Like what? Well, when you question anyone, forget the lost air sort of thing. Best approach is to represent yourself from an insurance company. You got some money to pay out on a policy. Uh, here, take these business cards. Yeah. Hmm. Clarence J. Walden and Associates, insurance representatives. Claims paid promptly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I do have a small agency. The cards are legitimate. When do you want to start? Right away. All right. Pick up your first advance on Friday. I headed back to El Cairo without the slightest intention of cluing Beth in on anything. It's not that I'm greedy, but I figured even to just tell her might complicate matters. I'm back. I'm in here, taking a bath. Anything new? I found a job. Not much, but it'll do till something better comes along. You got anything to eat? You got a new job. That's wonderful. I'll be right out. Yeah, selling insurance. It's a small company. Excuse this towel, but it's all that was handy. I need a really big one, don't I? Mm, no, I like it. <laughs> well, it's not very modest. Selling insurance. I won't pay very much, will it? Mm, with a drawing account, I'll get along. Are you going to uh, keep living here? I may have to travel a lot, so I don't want to waste money on rent. I'll finish cleaning out number nine, and you can rent it again. With old Ryan dead, there's no reason to continue his lease. Well, there's no reason you couldn't stay with me here. You're not going to be making all that much money, and in your spare time, well, you can help out around here. Hmm. I'll tell you what. Go ahead. Rent out number nine. I'll stay with you, but I'll pay half the rent. You'll be money ahead, right? <laughs> There's coffee in the kitchen. I'll put on my captain. I rapped with Beth over the coffee, bringing the conversation around to Edgar Ryan. The first time she'd ever met old Edgar was when she came down to Los Angeles for her dad's funeral. Naturally, she was more definite about her own family when I asked. My folks were married in San Francisco and were living there when I was born. Dad wasn't a very good businessman. Finally, they just gave up. Dad moved down here and Mother stayed in San Francisco. I lived with her. Well, she worked until she died. By then, I was 18. What was your mother's maiden name before she married your father? 
Josephine. Oh, Tully. Everybody called her Josie. Why? No reason. She was a beautiful woman when she was young. I got my red hair from her. I hope. <laughs> You're blushing. Well, I know. I, I sound like I'm bragging. Well, I'm not a fair judge. See, everybody thinks their mother's the most beautiful woman in the world. I don't. My mom's no beauty queen. I get my looks from my dad. You got anything else to eat besides fruit? Uh, got a new deck here. The old one's seen better days. Yeah. Uh, like I was saying, it's logical to assume that Etta Ryan Martin was Edgar Ryan's daughter. Her daughter, Helen Martin, has got to be Ryan's granddaughter. If she's still alive, Helen's a grown woman by now. The Funeral Directors Association has no record beyond ten years of a Willow Chapel funeral home. Our only lead left is Sabin's, the name of the store on the back of Edda's death notice. We have to locate the city it's in. Well, I'll send out a letter to all the manufacturers associations, retailers, organizations, and uh, credit reporting companies. Uh, maybe pull in something on Sabin's, you know. Uh, but it'll take a while, though. Uh, meanwhile, I'll talk to Alvin Hyatt. He's the administrator appointed by the court for Ryan's present estate. Uh, keep plugging away, boy. Hard work pays off. Uh, any chance on calling today, Friday? Yeah, I will tomorrow. I may need some scratch. Two red tens up already. Oh, this is hopeless. Let's see. Alvin Hyatt was an attorney with offices in a bank building on Broadway, downtown Los Angeles. The tax assessor had turned over to him all of Ryan's possessions and papers to put through probate. Mr. Hyatt, my card. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Quinn? Um, please be seated. After you phoned, I dug up the file on Edgar Ryan in this folder. Oh, thanks. Hmm. Emmy's death certificate. Cause of death, stroke. Hey, a driver's license. <laughs> uh, expired 1916. Yeah, but it gives his birthday. February 17th, 1897. He wasn't married. Wasn't married. Well, it doesn't mean he was never married. He might have been divorced or a widower. Oh, sure, you're right. State of Washington license. Seattle address. Thank you, Mr. Hyatt. Oh, um, Mr. Quinn? Yes? The folder? I dropped the car off at El Cairo. Beth wasn't around, so I left the keys in her mailbox. Then I took a cab to the airport. Walden got pretty hot over the telephone when the airlines called to see if my expense account covered a flight to Seattle, but he said okay. I had copied the address off Ryan's old driver's license and had to follow it up. I took a taxi from the Seattle airport. Ryan had lived in an old 1890 vintage big brown frame house. Three stories, each needed paint badly. Yellow and purple stained glass panel in the front door. Really grotesque. A tired-faced, harassed, middle-aged woman opened the door and stared at me with suspicion. I knew the place was or had been a boarding house. I gave her my insurance routine and my card. She gave me her name, Myrna Coyne, and invited me in. 
I don't recall any Edgar Ryan, but maybe my mother does. She's real old, but she's smart as a jaybird. Reads her Bible all day and doesn't forget much of anything, even though she's 87. <laughs> my mother, Mrs. Daly. Ma likes to make up riddles about the holy book. Ma, you got a visitor. Wants to know maybe you remember a boarder from 15, 20 years back? Yes, Mrs. Daly. His name is Edgar Rhine. There's nothing wrong with my hearing. Oh, sorry. Young man, do you know who is the smallest man in the Bible? Huh? Uh, who was the smallest man in the Bible? No, I don't know. Peter. Peter the disciple. He slept on his watch. Matthew 26, 40. <laughs> I tell you, she's a caution. Yes, I can see that, Mrs. Coyne. And who was the straightest man in the Bible? Who was the straightest man in the Bible? <laughs> oh, you stumped me again, Mrs. Daly. Joseph. Because Pharaoh made a ruler out of him. Oh. Genesis 41, 42, 3. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, golly, that's a good one, Mrs. Yeah. Daly. <laughs> You're really a panic. Uh, did you ever tell Edgar Rhine any of those? Young man, I've talked about the good book to all our boarders. Uh, do you remember Edgar Rhine? Well, I can't say as I do right off. So many boarders come and go on. Well, he would have been in his 50s then. He moved to California. Oh, the old sea captain. Sure he lived here. We've got a pretty nice insurance settlement for his next of kin. Well, he kept pretty much to himself. But I remember one thing for sure. His name wasn't Ryan. It was Rankin. Edward A. Rankin. <laughs> So Ryan might have been a merchant marine. Big deal. That's a lot of expense money you spent to find out nothing. Well, what I didn't find out is important. Before I left Seattle, I stopped at the library, went through the city directories. Don't tell me. No Turner Street Martins, no Willow Chapel, no Sabins. He wrecked. Also another stop, Maritime Union Local. Edgar Ryan didn't belong to it either. I need this aggravation. Here. I brought you a present. Oh, well, where'd you get these cards? Yeah. These are dirty pictures. Wait till you get a load of the Queen of Spades. <laughs> I hitched back to El Cairo to rest up. This air hunting was tiring business. A few days later, in the morning... Hello? Yes, he's here. Uh, just a minute, please. It's for you. Good thing I got this long cord. Hello. Uh, Quinn, Walden here. We got something on those letters I sent out. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there used to be a Sabins, a small chain of sporting goods stores in Chicago. Chicago? Folded sometime in the 50s. Who is it, Dean? I made a plane reservation for you. Can you get to the airport by noon? Oh, uh, wait a minute. Beth, can you run me to the airport? I guess so. Oh, thanks, girl. I won't be gone long. Quinn. Yes, Mr. Walden, I've got a ride. Uh, what airlines? Got a pencil and paper? Uh, okay, okay, lay it on me. Uh, Anaconda Airlines, flight number two to Salt Lake City. Utah? Yeah. I thought you were going to Chicago. Transfer there to Thrift Skies Midwest Airlines, flight 111 to O'Hare. 
When do I arrive? Next week? Very funny. I'm trying to keep expenses down. You land in Chicago at 9.18. Their time. Let me know what you find out. I'll be sure to call collect. Goodbye, Chief. I made it to Chicago unscathed, no thanks to either airline. The only two times I unbuckled my safety belt were when we landed. I came out of it okay, but the cab driver who drove me into the city asked a lot of questions about why my nose was bleeding. I had a headache, too, but it was too cold to notice. The wind whipping off Lake Michigan reminded me how stupid I was to leave my heavy coat in California. The house at 119 Turner Street had four apartments, two up, two down. No name of Martin on the mailboxes, so I tried the first door. The little card in the door had just one word printed on it. Pasek. A big, tough, heavy-set guy somewhere in his late 60s opened the door. He hitched up his baggy trousers and gave me the evil eye. I handed him my card. Uh, I don't want no insurance. Oh, I'm not here to sell you any. But I'll give some money to Helen Martin if I find her. No family named Martin live here. Well, they did, years ago. Who owns this place? Me. Ignace Pasek. They, uh... They got money coming. They sure do. No trouble, no lawsuit. Not for me. Just money. Please. Come in. Sit down by table. I still have two beers. How much uh, ammonia you give Martins? Enough. Oh, thank you. You're welcome, sport. It's a very uh, attractive girl. Oh, Stella. Uh, she be all right. Uh, no got good sense. How you like beer? Well, 30 above zero is hardly beer drinking weather, but it's good. Yeah, plenty good. My brother makes it. Charlie Martin owe me plenty money. You pay me. No, I can't. I'll pay Helen Martin. She can pay you. Don't know where she lives. Martins move away. When? In war, Korea, 1952, 1953. You don't know where they go. Well, that had to be after Mrs. Martin died. Yeah. You don't know where they moved? Yeah. Don't know. Well, thanks for the brew. May I use your phone to call a cab to take me to the Drake? Yeah. <laughs> On the way to the hotel, I asked the cab driver if he could run me by the Willow Chapel funeral home. There wasn't much to it. Nothing at all, to be precise. They had gone under, so to speak, in 1955. It was pretty late that night as I sat in my hotel room with a bottle of scotch and a glass of cracked ice trying to forget the ten grand commission that was apparently slipping from my grasp when... Who is it? Hi there, sport. Stella? Yeah, I'm colder than hell. Let me in. Here, take my coat. <laughs> I didn't have a chance to get all dolled up. Grandpa would have suspected something. Hasek? Your grandfather? Sure. How about offering me a drink, sport? 
How'd you know where to find me? Heard you call the taxi. Thank you. I'd uh, love a drink. Oh, don't stand out there in the hall. Come on in. Hey, what are you doing? I'm lying on the bed. What does it look like? It looks like you're lying on the bed. Why did you come here, anyway? Uh, pour me one. How old are you, Stella? Old enough. What do I owe this visit? My personal charm, or what? Here, here's your drink. You sure took long enough. Um, maybe I like you, sport. Also, uh, maybe we can help each other. That's two maybes. Today, uh, Grandpa didn't tell you all he knew about Charlie. Well, what do you mean? Now, you're going back to Hollywood, right? You take me with you. Boy, oh, you didn't hear that. Stella, let me put it to you this way. You're, you're an attractive girl, but you don't stand a chance out there. Uh, I don't want to be a movie star. I'll find a job, anything, just so I can get out of here, away from Grandpa. All I want is money for a bus ticket, and I'll tell you what you want to know. Well, fair is fair. And you let me stay here till I go. That's not fair. Okay. Try to find out for yourself about Edna Martin and Charlie and Helen Martin. Uh, where's my coat? No, no wait a minute. I, I can't let you stay. If your grandpa and your father find you here, they'll tear me apart. I'm very breakable. I asked for my coat. Oh, look, Stella. Uh, uh, in California, you're going to be on your own. I'll get you there, but that's all. A uh, real gentleman doesn't keep a lady waiting for her coat. All right, all right. All right, you can stay here till bus time in the morning. Now, about your grandpa and what he didn't say about Charlie Martin. Uh, you understand my grandpa didn't tell me this. But when my mama was alive, sometimes I'd hear her talking with my old man about Charlie Martin. Yeah, go ahead. When Grandpa Pasek was young, he was always chasing women. He liked pretty girls even after he was married. In those days, he had a good job on the railroad. So did Charlie Martin. The two of them were very, very good friends, so Grandpa rented Charlie and his wife an apartment upstairs. Charlie was younger and even bigger than Grandpa, and... And Mrs. Martin was very pretty, and Ignace, the old lech, had his eye on her. Yeah, I get the picture. Well, maybe Edda was a good woman and didn't give in. Maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, keep going. Well, the Martins had a baby, a little girl they called Helen. Then Mrs. Martin got sick and died. Everybody was quite surprised because she was such a young woman. There was a big funeral at the... At the Willow Chapel Funeral Home. Are you going to keep on interrupting, or can I go on? I'm sorry. All right, so Charlie Martin came back to the apartment after the funeral and went out in the garage and beat the hell out of Grandpa. Nearly killed him. You remember that big scar? I remember. Uh, how about a refill? Finish first. So Grandpa had to go to the hospital. When he got out, he came looking for Charlie. He wanted to get even, have him arrested, sue him or something. But he couldn't find him. Charlie was gone. Where did he go? Joined the Army. Where's Charlie Martin now? Still in Korea, but he ain't coming back. Why not? Charlie Martin is dead. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Air Hunters. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, 
Heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. The Air Hunters was written by Bill S. Ballinger. Ken Berry is Dean. Joanne Worley is Beth. And Edgar Bergen is Walden. Featured in the cast are Elvia Allman as Myrna, June Foray as Mrs. Daly, Dawes Butler as Pasek, and Valerie Perrine as Stella. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's sound portrait of an unlikely hero. The Air Hunters. Starring Ken Berry, Joanne Worley, and Edgar Bergen. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. happy-go-lucky, frolicking his way through life in search of the missing heir to a fortune. He enlists the financial assistance of Clarence J. Walden, a professional air hunter, in return for his services. The search leads Dean Quinn first to Seattle and a dead end, then to Chicago to an address listed in the old newspaper clipping, to the apartment house owned by Ignaz Pasek, and face-to-face with Pasek's young granddaughter, Stella, they meet again at Dean's hotel under an odd set of circumstances. Stella wants something. Out. Bus fare to California and a place to hide overnight. Dean wants no part of it, but he does want to find the missing heir. And what he finds is that now he's looking for one last link, the end of the family line, Helen Martin. 
He also finds himself half-drowned in a swimming pool in Palm Springs, with a dead body floating in the deep end. To put it in Dean Quinn's own words, why me? The Air Hunters will continue after this word. drunk? I, I must be drunk. What, what happened here? Did, did I fall in and, and hit my head on the side of the pool? Or, or did someone, whoever killed her, did they try to frame me? Come on, come on, Dean boy, put it together or your ticket is forever punched. Chicago. Remember Chicago? Remember Stella? Stella was in my room at the Drake Hotel in Chicago when she told me about Charlie Martin. Charlie Martin is dead. He got killed in Korea. What about the little girl, Helen? I don't know what happened to her. Can I have that drink now? Yeah, help yourself. Who are you calling? Don't sweat, sweets. I'm not blowing the whistle on you. of Clarence J. Walden, president of Clarence J. Walden and Associates Insurance Representatives, where we pride ourselves in paying our claims promptly. Boss, wait. Our office is closed for the day, but we'll be back tomorrow morning when the big hand is on the 12 and the little one is at the 9. Aren't you going to talk? Yeah, if he ever shuts up. If your call is urgent, please leave your name and number, and one of our representatives will get back to you as soon as possible. You will have exactly 10 seconds after you hear the little beep. Boss, this is Dean. Charles Kermit Martin was killed in Korean War, Illinois Regiment. Call VA, check where allotment was sent for his daughter, Helen Martin. Also insurance. Call me at Drake Hotel. Wire money. Sport, you sound like a disc jockey. Hey, what, what are you doing? Put your clothes back on. I'm getting into bed. I need my beauty rest. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think I'll sack out on the couch here. Uh, sweet dreams. I slept lousy that night. I kept waking up, hearing buzzing in my ears like I used to when pneumonia was coming on. A couple of times I thought I felt something warm cuddling up to me, but I couldn't tell for sure. Might have been just a vivid hallucination. In the morning I had a brute of a headache. My skin was crawling and I had a pretty good case of cotton mouth. Worst of all... I was in the bed. Stella was up and dressed. Stella, how did I get here? I, I mean, in the bed. I don't know. Did I get up and... I mean, we didn't... Uh... You kept kicking around saying you were cold. Well, I was. What time is it? Five o'clock. I'm bored. Five o'clock? You're going to fall out of bed if you keep jumping around. Oh, uh, some guy called while you were sleeping. I wrote it down. Walden called? You don't have to yell. Lay down. He said...
said the name you wanted was Mrs. Vivian Clay, Route 1, Towan, Illinois. He also said he wasn't underwriting no playing around with girls. Oh, I'm going back to sleep. Maybe I'll get lucky and wake up dead. Boy, you're no fun. But I woke up alive the next morning. I just felt dead. I rented a car and Stella drove me to see Vivian Clay in Towan, a tiny town about 60 miles outside of Chicago. Hey, Deanie, nice farm. <coughs> Is this the place? Mailbox says so. Then turn in. Vivian Clay was a gray-haired, pleasant woman with firm, regular features. She served us hot tea, which helped me listen as she explained that Helen Martin was her niece, whom she raised when her brother, Charlie Martin, died in Korea. She knew very little about Etta Ryan Martin, other than that she was Helen's mother. Uh, this here is a picture of Helen taking when she graduated high school. Very pretty girl. That's a pretty old picture. Uh, Mrs. Clay, how old is Helen now? Well, uh, uh, 26. Helen travels a lot. After high school, she went to Northwestern. We saved her dad's army insurance. Uh, then she went to study art in that Paris of Rome. Uh, later, she came back to New York and worked as one of them models. Where is she now? Uh, California. Pardon? My, my head's a little clogged. D did you say California? Yes, uh, near Los Angeles. Is there any place I can write her? Why, yes. Uh, she has a post office box in that uh, North Hollywood. I don't remember leaving Vivian Clay or her farm or driving back to Chicago or anything. I don't even know where or when I lost Stella Pasek. I was coughing and sneezing, dizzy, totally spaced out. I just wanted to get back to Beth. Somehow I did. Beth called a doctor, and he came and did his thing for four days. On the fifth day, my lungs breathed air again, and I sat up in Beth's king-size bed, ready for action. How are you feeling? Like 10,000 bucks. Girl, oh, am I glad to see you. I'll get it. Yes? Uh, what bungalow does Mr. Dean Quinn live in? This one. Uh, is he expecting you? Oh, sort of. I'm a very good friend of his, and he asked me to visit. Beth! Well, why don't you come in? Any friend of Dean's is a friend of mine. Oh, why me? Beth, this is Stella Pasek, uh, an acquaintance. Stella, Beth Temple. You don't look so good, Deanie. I've been sick, and I think I'm getting a relapse. Lucky I didn't catch your cold when you insisted I stay with you in that crummy hotel. What crummy hotel? Uh, Beth, please. Do you have a place to stay, dear? Not yet. I have a nice little bungalow, number nine, only $80 a month. It would make it awfully convenient for Deanie. <laughs> and you don't have any other friends here, and, uh, well, we could be friends, couldn't we? Oh, yes. I feel sick. Yeah. Let's get you settled. Uh, Stella, is it? Hello? 
I can always tell when I'm not being appreciated, so I got up and left the El Cairo. I hitched over to Universal City to see Walden and to bring him up to date. He was delighted to see me. Look at those expenses. Well, it's nothing to get uptight about, Mr. Walden. We got an address for Helen Martin. Post office box, North Hollywood. Post office won't give you her home address. They don't give out that information except to the FBI or the IRS. And you aren't either of them. I know that. I-, I wrote her a letter and I mailed it to the box number. I just need a little more time until she picks it up. All right, Quinn. You better find Helen Martin soon. I'm in business to find fortunes, not spend them. That evening when I got back to the bungalow, things had nearly returned to normal. Beth mixed up vodka martinis and brought out an old shoebox full of photographs. There were a lot of her as a small girl and some of her mother, Josie, who really was a fox, like she said. There was only one of her father, a man you couldn't pick out in a small crowd if you'd seen him a hundred times. But in the hodgepodge of snapshots was a picture of Edgar Rhine. He was in a photo with two other men, all of them grinning like idiots into the camera. From their clothes, I guessed it was taken around 1925. That one, with the sailor's jacket and derby. He's Edgar Rhine? That's him. Of course, when I saw him, he didn't look much like that. Yeah, 50 years in between can change a man. Uh, Who are the two guys with him? I don't know. On the back, somebody wrote, Ed, Hack, and Tony. Well, Ed's obviously Edgar Rhine. Uh, have you any idea who Hack and Tony are? Not the slightest. Where did the picture come from? Dad's things. I don't know how it got there, and Dad's name wasn't Hack or Tony. It was William Temple. Yeah. You ready for another drink? Don't rush. We're having a guest for dinner. Who? Stella. It seemed that the sweet, shy little country girl from the mecca of the corn country had done right well for herself. Stella was now a cigarette girl at the Yodela Gogo, a rock joint on the Sunset Strip. It was enough to make a man give up smoking. Jeff, hello. Stella, darling. Oh, hello, Dean. You here? Beth, isn't my job simply wonderful? Just perfect. I'll get the drink so we can toast to your success. Well, will it make me sicky? I never had a drink till I met Dean. Hope I can hold it. (laughs) I don't believe it. Be back in a minute. Dean, will you come over to my place later? Uh, what do you hear from Chicago, kid? You'll be sorry. Where are you going? Just to the door for some air. I could have written a letter to dear Abby that would have given her a mental block. Anyway, a few days later, a tall, slender, beautiful blonde showed up at the post office and picked up my letter. I could tell it was the one I'd sent by the red envelope. She was driving away in a silver, chrome-plated monster as I arrived to start my daily stakeout. But I got her license number, which Walden could check out through the Department of Motor Vehicles. This new development encouraged him enough to write to Cook County, Illinois, for a copy of Helen Martin's birth certificate to prove she was the legitimate heir of Edgar Rhine. I also convinced him that it was worth a gamble for me to go to San Francisco and see what the Maritime Union's main office had on Edgar Rhine. Not enough of a gamble, however, to buy me plane fare. 
Beth was kind enough to allow me the use of her car. Good old girl, though. At the Maritime Union, a nice old lady named Miss Morrissey told me she'd been working there ever since she got out of business college, which I figured was about the time somebody invented the typewriter. She went through a lot of dusty old cardboard files. This is our file of deceased members. Well, he's dead, all right. Seems I recall the police were looking for him once. Nothing ever came of it. Aha! Here it is. Is this what you want? Uh, name, Edgar A. Rhine. Citizen USA, born March 13th, 1897. Place of birth, Morro Bay, California. Married? No. Uh, I'm guessing he was divorced. No, it would say if he was a divorced man. Oh, there must be some mistake. I know for a fact that Edgar Ryan was a family man. Who knows better, him or you? So, with Miss Morrissey's information, the bottom fell out again. If old Edgar Ryan had never married, he couldn't have any direct heirs. Now, this had come up before, so I brushed it off and kept looking for Helen Martin. There had to be a connection. There were just too many unexplained coincidences otherwise. After I left the union office, I went over to the Daily Tribune. I placed a classified ad under personals. It read, Edgar A. Ryan, Reward. Anyone having known him, write to Mr. Dean Quinn, care of Clarence J. Walden and Associates, Universal City, California. I drove like crazy to get back to L.A., but I had to lay over in Santa Maria, thanks to a bad cheeseburger. When I finally cruised Walden, he had all the poop on the silver monster I'd seen at the post office. It was registered to Florenzia Monte, Acacia Drive, Brentwood. I didn't waste any time getting there. A butler, sporting a bit of a belly and a broken nose, informed me that no Helen Martin was there, ever had been, or was ever expected to be. But after some diplomatic negotiation on my part, he agreed to escort me to see Miss Monty, who did indeed live there, and at that point in time was sunning herself out by the swimming pool. It was the same blonde, all right. She was stretched out on the diving board, wearing a sliver of a bikini, tanning herself, head cradled in her arms. I couldn't see her face. Without moving her head, she said, What do you want? Uh, I'm trying to locate Helen Martin. She has $100,000 coming to her. You'd give it to her, just like that? Well, first, she'd have to prove in court that she's the rightful heir. She'd be rich and famous, and in all the newspapers. You bet your sweet life. Uh, tell, tell me something. Are you Helen Martin? No. I think I shall have a glass of cold champagne. Care to join me, Mr. Uh, Quinn. Dean Quinn, at your service. No, thank you. I'm driving. You are Florenzia Monti? Zia, please. Perhaps we can straighten out this awkward situation. You know Helen Martin? Yes. I know her, but I don't like to feel responsible for her. I keep a post office box in the valley for my own personal use. With a house full of servants, one has very little privacy. Yeah, I know what you mean. Every letter that comes, all my own special little secrets. 
Anyway, I gave Helen permission to use my post office box. Don't you forward her mail? Yes, certainly, whenever she writes to tell me where she is. I haven't heard from her in over a year. Uh, last time, where from? Hong Kong, I think, or some such place. She travels, buys, imports clothes. How long have you known Helen Martin? Oh, years. Six, perhaps, or seven. I met her when she was studying in Paris. My family keeps a place there, although they live in Rome. And you met again here in California? Something like that. We've kept in touch. Do you have Helen's last forwarding address? Someplace around. I'll have to look for it. If I find it, I'll let you know. Yeah, do that. I'll leave my card. I'll write down another number where I can be reached. Oh, you are an insurance man. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, claims paid promptly, it says right there. I hope I'll be hearing from you, Miss Monty. Zia. See ya, Zia. After meeting with Florencia Monti, I paid a visit to the bank where Walden did his business. I asked Tilford Jones, one of the vice presidents, to give me a Dun and Bradstreet report on Florencia Monti. He told me that she was triple A1, top credit rating, which came as no surprise after I'd peeped her palace. Jones also gave me the lowdown on her personal background when I asked for it. Zia Monti was a legal representative with power of attorney for Roma Fiducia an Italian holding company under a Swiss charter. Jones explained that the company was primarily an investment house and did very little trading in stocks and bonds, all of which meant nothing to me. Zia was working here under the supervision of her home office, and she was very likely a blood relative of one of the company's high executives. A lot of the old European firms still did business in the old-fashioned way, keeping it in the family. I thanked Jones for the information, and while I still had use of Beth's car, drove back to Universal City to see if Walden had anything further for me. So what's the skinny on the Mountie woman? Well, she's above board, boss, but she's not Helen Martin. Didn't expect she would be. Uh, no, don't worry, Mr. Walden. Something has to break soon. I think Helen Martin is in China. China? And why don't you take a break, Quinn? Go home. Go back to law school. Oh, Rome wasn't built in a day, you know. What's that got to do with Helen Martin? Well, I don't know. She studied there. Uh, Quinn, you're a nice kid. I like you. Now, let's leave it at that. Oh, by the way, a letter came for you. And in the future, you won't use this address. Oh, it's from San Francisco. Dear sir... Read your ad in the San Francisco Tribune regarding Edgar Rhine. Used to know a man by that name once. Don't know if he's the same one you mean. Note your address is Los Angeles. My ship will make San Pedro on the 19th and sail early the morning of the 20th. You can look me up while I am there. Yours truly, Albert Cress, second officer, S.S. McAllister. The 19th? Well, that's today. Finally, your dumbness will kill you if you're not careful. Because you'll go charging off one last time into someone with a cannon in his fist who's waiting just for you. Had I but known. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Air Hunters. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Thank you.
been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. The Air Hunters was written by Bill S. Ballinger. Ken Barry is Dean. Joanne Worley is Beth. And Edgar Bergen is Walden. Featured in the cast are Valerie Perrine as Stella, Peggy Weber as Mrs. Clay, and Sabrina Scharf as Zia. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Q. Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... to The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's sound portrait of an unlikely hero. The Air Hunters. Starring Ken Berry, Joanne Worley, and Edgar Bergen. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. has been trying to locate Helen Martin, missing heiress to a hidden fortune. He's been fishing for clues, but to this point has caught only a good case of pneumonia. He meets Virginia Clay, Helen Martin's aunt, who sends him back to California into a post office box. Dean Quinn back in California, back to his girl, Beth Temple, and into the fire, brought upon by the arrival of the irrepressible Stella Pasek from Chicago. But it's the business of air hunting that Dean Quinn has chosen, so he follows the trail north to San Francisco, then back to Los Angeles, to the mansion of the young and beautiful, mysterious Florenzia Monti, but still not a trace of Helen Martin. He has no idea where or even who she is, 
Nor for that matter does he know exactly how he got to where he is, in a swimming pool, half drowned and bleeding, and not alone. His company is dead, murdered. Dean Quinn wants to know, in a word, why. The Air Hunters resumes after this message. myself out of the pool and staggered into the living room. It was a mess, a disaster area. It looked worse than my head felt. Whoever had bopped me and, and killed her. But... Come on, Boyle, remember it all or they'll get you for sure. Uh, water, the harbor. Uh, water, what, what am I thinking of? The McAllister. I went to the pier to talk to Albert Cress about Edgar Rhine. Sure, I knew Edgar Rhine. Often wondered what happened to him. Last saw him maybe 15 years ago. He was second engineer aboard the Sudo Sea, the tanker older than Noah's Ark. I was on her too, as an A.B. Ate more coffee? Uh, no, no thanks, Mr. Cress. Well, we picked up a cargo of crude in the Persian Gulf, sailed up to the Red Sea to the Med, played over in Istanbul a couple of days, and then sailed back to the States. We got held up at customs when we berthed in Jersey. Ship was swarming with treasury men. They'd been tipped off that we'd picked up some junk in Turkey. Practically took the old tub apart. I didn't find an ounce. That's odd, if the narcs were so well, sure. Well, arrested a steward and a couple of wipers from the engine room. Finally let them go. Point I'm making, Ryan left a ship there in Jersey. Well, what was odd was he'd signed on from the West Coast. You mean he deserted? No, no, he just drew his pay and walked off. Didn't say goodbye or go to hell. I drove back to face Walden again. I thought maybe what Cress had told me might perk him up a little. <laughs> So what? Well, I don't think old Ryan was in on the smuggling from the start, but he knew that engine room and everything in it. He found where the stuff was hidden, quit the ship, and walked off with a couple of tobacco tins of pure morphine. I won't condone that. A hundred thousand dollars from dope, salted away in little bank accounts under different names. The government will attach those accounts when they're revealed in probate. No, they won't. They'd only be guessing. There's absolutely no proof. Besides, there's the statute of limitations. I'm not going to argue with you, Quinn. You got me into this, but I'm getting out now. You can't. We've got a contract for a year. Oh, have we? There's your contract. Uh, want to sue me? <laughs> so I was canned. On my way out of Walden's office, I asked Nora, his secretary, to refer any telephone calls for me to El Cairo Court. Flat broke again and really down. I went back to Beth's. Hello, honey. Still and I have been out shopping. Well, how'd it go with the office today? Oh, great. If you dig getting fired. Oh, Dean. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I guess I could go back to passing out handbills. Hey, maybe I could fix you up with a job. One of the boys at the club quit last night. A job doing what? Parking cards. How much? You know, I've been making pretty good bread. You'll do it. So I took it. 
That night, Beth drove Stella and me to work at the Yodel Go-Go. It had no parking lot of its own. Steep hills above and steep hills below. I could tell right off it was going to be tough sledding. Stella introduced me to a young dude in a red T-shirt and tight white stretch pants. Gilroy, this here's my very own first cousin, Dean. Stella, I, I don't think that's... He needs this. a job real bad, and right away I thought of you, Kilroy. <laughs> You thought about me? Yeah, he's an awful good driver. And I think you were just so sweet. You, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> How could Kilroy say no? He couldn't say anything at all with his eyes popping out, watching Stella slink into the club. Then the suckers began arriving, and we, the real suckers, started parking cars. We stashed them all up and down the side streets on both sides of Sunset, anywhere within five blocks. Then we had to whip back to the club on a dead run for the next one. By the time the club closed, I was a basket case. This wasn't a job for someone with chronic pneumonia. Kilroy had his motorcycle waiting to take Stella home, but she got a ride with an older guy wearing a purple pinstripe suit and a black tie driving a big, jazzy foreign import, which upset Kilroy no little. I was left to my own devices, which meant my trusty thumb. I learned one thing that night. Sweaty hitchhikers are not popular on the Sunset Strip. Back at El Cairo, I found Beth asleep on the couch. She left me a note explaining why. Dear Chaser, a girl named Nora called to leave a message for you that another girl named Zia wants you to call her in the morning. I think you should know that this is not an answering service and you might think about looking for new pastures to graze in. Let sleeping giants lie, Beth. I met Zia for lunch at the Barrier Reef, a little restaurant on the beach near Malibu. Seems she was interested in buying a paid-up insurance annuity. Could you sell me one? Sure, I guess so. How large an annuity? Oh, $250,000. <coughs> $250,000? I want one that will pay me, say, $10,000 a year for the rest of my life. Yeah, yes. You sure, of course. Well, I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work out the details. I didn't tell Zia I wasn't working for Walden any longer because knowing Walden, I knew he wouldn't turn down the kind of business I had in my pocket. My commission would be somewhere around $7,500, exclusive of what Walden made for overriding it. I swaggered into his office, and we drew up another contract. Walden said the deal had to go through the New York office, which would take maybe a week. Three days later, I called Zia at home. I must talk to you about the project again. You haven't changed your mind. I don't want to discuss it over the phone. If you could meet me this afternoon, why not drive with me to Palm Springs? We can talk on the way. Boy, oh, this is the way to do business. <laughs> I've never been out this way before. About that annuity, Dean. I want it in the name of Constance Niles. I thought it was for you. <laughs> of course it's for me. I simply want it in another name. <laughs> is it so wicked to want to save taxes? 
Well, no, but I doubt the insurance company will issue to a false name. And Internal Revenue has laws, too. <laughs> All right. But I think I can convince you. If not, perhaps I'll have to cancel the policy. Just checking out the way Zia was built, I didn't need much coaxing. The hideaway was several miles outside of Palm Springs. A sprawling desert adobe, the same color as the sand surrounding it. The place was closed up. No servants were there or anybody. The small cottage, as she called it, was actually a vast ranch house, complete with air conditioning. Zia opened a bottle of champagne and another of brandy and mixed French 75s. We sat on the patio beside the swimming pool, watching the mysterious blue desert night come down. The moon was a huge incandescent globe that pulverized the heavens with powdered light. The whole scene was, was totally surreal. I, I couldn't believe what was happening. Boy, oh, she was really some tomato. By the time we left Palm Springs for Los Angeles the next day, Zia had me convinced. Convinced that if I didn't change the name on the annuity to Constance Niles, I'd lose the sale and never see her again. And I didn't intend to do either. Hi, I'm back. And just in time. Kilroy says you're fired if you don't show up tonight. And after all the humiliation I had to go through to get you the job. I know, dear. Hey, since one of you ladies decided to run my life for me... From now on, I am running my own. I'll pack my stuff and get out. Where are you going? The Century Plaza? And how much money you got? He doesn't have $10. And he'll spend that out chasing girls. It's a good thing he's got you, Beth, to keep an eye on him. Dean, why don't you move back into number nine? Stella can move in with me. Oh, please. Knock it off. So I moved into number nine, and Stella started camping with Beth. Until my insurance commission came through, I still needed the tips from the parking lot. There was a lousy band playing that night, and business was slow, so I didn't make much money, but at least I kept most of my sweat inside my body. Stella got a ride from that same guy as last time, but in a different car. A shiny new domestic model, about a half a block long, and Kilroy was plenty teed off. Hey, Dean, look here. I guess I fixed that creep. Took it right out of his glove compartment. <laughs> Kilroy, that's a gun. Yeah, real pretty, ain't it? Yaffe Kush don't go in for no cheap stuff. Yaffe Kush? Yeah, the jerk driving Stella home big time. Big shot. Syndicate. This has got to be worth at least 50 bucks. Are you out of your mind? You stole a gun from him? He'll come back looking for it. Nah, he's got plenty more. Hey, Dean, be on time tomorrow now, will you? Hey, Kilroy... Look at that broad. Where? Over there, across the street. I don't see no broad. Oh, you missed her. She's gone now. Well, see you tomorrow. Yeah. I couldn't let Kilroy keep that gun. He was an all right guy, and I didn't want to see him getting snuffed for something so dumb. So while he was looking across the street, I lifted the gun from his saddlebag. After he was gone, I put it in a paper bag and I hid it in the bushes by the club. Let's see, that was Friday night. I called in sick on Saturday and Sunday the club's closed. 
I was in Bungalow 9 about 10.30 Sunday night, washing out my drip-dry shirt when... Yeah? Hi, it's Ford. Stella? Out. Out! Gee, it's nice to be alone at last. Beth's gone to a movie. Stella, go back to Beth's place. You know what she'd think if she found you here. Oh, fool, I wouldn't want to hurt Beth. We're dear friends, but you did break up with her, didn't you? Do you have anything cooking on the stove? No. Why? Well, in that case, Beth's bungalow is on fire. I guess it was the most excitement they'd had in the neighborhood for some time. All those sirens and flashing red lights brought people together who hadn't seen each other in years. Actually, the fire wasn't that bad. The cops seemed to think the blaze was a cover-up for something else. Maybe robbery. They noted that the furniture was smashed and the drawers emptied out. As far as Stella and I could see, nothing was missing, so they wrote it up as a stock case of teenage vandalism. After they'd gone... Does Yaffe Kush know you live here? Of course not. Then how have you been getting home? On a magic carpet? For your information, Mr. Kush is a gentleman, which is more than I can say for you. He calls me a cab whenever I want to come home. It never occurred to you he might own the cab company? Mr. Cush is in the machine business, Mr. Smarty. Sure he is. Slot machines, vending machines, political machines. Oh, I hate you. Oh, hate me later. Help me clean up this mess before Beth gets home. I didn't come right out and say to Stella that I thought Yaffe Cush had been there looking for his missing gun and tried to burn the place down when he couldn't find it. The next day... I went to see Walden about any late developments in the Florenzia Monte Constance Niles deal. Ah, Quinn, yeah, come in. Back to the old drawing board, I see. I just can't seem to give it up uh, or beat the damn thing. You ever consider cheating? Mm. Oh, uh, uh, there's a letter for you. It's from Chicago. It's, uh, it's a photostat of Etta Rhines and Charlie Martin's marriage license. Mm. Still plugging away, eh, Quinn? Another bummer. Etta Rhine's father was Henry Rhine. So if... And I don't even know if I can find out. If Henry Rhine and Edgar Rhine were brothers, that would make Helen Martin, wherever she is, Edgar's grandniece, not his granddaughter. So what? We're off the Rhine case anyway. Yeah. Well, there's still my insurance commission. Zia, it's Mia. Clean Dean. <laughs> it's all set. Wonderful. I'll be out by Palm Springs tomorrow. What do you say we meet at the hideaway? Eight o'clock? We'll have a private little party in honor of the event. Boy, oh, that sounds terrific. I'll bring the papers. I'll bring the money. $250,000 in cash. Cash? What's wrong with a cashier's check? It'll be safe. I'll keep it under lock and key in my cosmetics box in the trunk of the car. Besides, the cashier's check would involve a bank, and I don't see where it's any of their business, do you? Well, no, no, I guess you're right. See you at eight. Bye now. The next morning, I rented a car and drove all over town to make sure everything was in perfect running condition. At six o'clock, I couldn't sit any longer. 
I made sure I had the papers, and... No, why now? Why me? Won't eat start? No. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I can't kill myself without fumes. You can use my car. I won't need it tonight. Oh, girl oh, you'd do that for me? I was almost to the freeway when I thought of something. Bringing all that cash back with me could be dangerous. So I turned up Wilcox and headed towards Sunset in the Strip. Kilroy wasn't there yet, so nobody recognized me when I went looking in the bushes. I found the paper bag with Yaffe's gun, then headed out for Palm Springs. A bit late, but on my way. I thought I could make up some lost time out in the open road, but I made a wrong turn and I was halfway to Indio before a gas station attendant straightened me out. It was almost 9.30 when I made the turn onto the long dirt road. I threaded my set of wheels into the five-car garage attached to the house. The garage was empty, except for the stodgy, square, conservative coupe she had driven down in. I parked beside it and got out. As I walked past the car, I remembered the cosmetics case locked in the trunk. Mm, pretty baby. Two hundred and fifty thousand bucks. <laughs> I'll take real good care of you. Um, hello? Zia, it's Mia! I walked from the garage around the house to the main entrance. The wind was up. I dodged a tumbleweed that blew across the lawn. The desert cools off fast at night. I hoped it hadn't cooled her off towards me. The lights were on in the living room. So she was here like she'd promised. I punched the doorbell. I, I stood there quite a while, but no one answered. I was getting impatient, both for Zia and my commission. You know, 33% of nothing is nothing. I knocked on the door, just one little rap, and it swung open. Anyone here? Uh, at ease, dry your tears. Dean's here. Uh, hello, uh, anyone home? The living room was empty. Also the dining room, the library, sunrooms, kitchen, and the game room. The whole joint was deserted. I opened the sliding glass door and stepped outside to the patio and pool. The outdoor lights were off and it was plenty dark. Almost concealed in the darkness by the side of the pool nearest to me, something was bobbing in the water. I stepped to the edge of the pool to take a better look. Oh. Oh. Oil. Zia stared up at me from the water. Her eyes and her mouth were wide open and her hair was matted to the side of her head. Except for the, the features of her face and, and the curled fingers of one outstretched hand, or her body was suspended a few inches beneath the surface. I didn't have a chance to see any more because, without warning, my arms were pinned behind me and some ape had his hands around my throat. There were two of them, but I couldn't see who they were. Then I got zapped upside my head. Oh! Like I told you, 
If you're not careful, you can get killed. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense, The Air Hunters. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. been listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. The Air Hunters was written by Bill S. Ballinger. Ken Berry is Dean. Joanne Worley is Beth. And Edgar Bergen is Walden. Featured in the cast are Barney Phillips as Cress, Greg Malavy as Kilroy, Sabrina Scharf as Zia, and Valerie Perrine as Stella. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's sound portrait of an unlikely hero. The Air Hunters. Starring Ken Berry, Joanne Worley, and Edgar Bergen. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Quinn first left New York for California for his health. He hadn't any. But once out west, he found other reasons to stay. One, Beth Temple. Girl owed a dean. 
Two, his discovery of a hidden fortune salted away, waiting to be claimed. And three, the search to find Helen Martin, the rightful heir to the money. If it were only as simple as one, two, three for Dean Quinn, he's found the source of the money to have been smuggled drugs. He alone knows the location of a gun stolen from Yafi Kush, a well-known underworld figure. And he made a deal to sell an insurance policy to a wealthy, beautiful foreign woman named Florenzia Monte. They would have made it her desert retreat in Palm Springs. What Dean Quinn didn't plan on was the fact that when he got there, she'd be dead. Nor did he expect someone would knock him unconscious and throw him in the swimming pool to drown. Whatever happened to Helen Martin? What's going to happen to Dean Quinn? The conclusion of the Air Hunters follows after this word. Zia, Zia, honey, speak to me. Oh, what am I doing? She's dead. I gotta get out of here. Somebody tried to kill me. Why me? Why try to murder good old Dean Quinn? Oh, boy, oh. If the cops find me here with a place looking like this and... And Zia deep-sixed in the pool and looked like... like I did it. They'd say I killed her. Why, of course. That's the frame. I was supposed to have robbed her, killed her, and then fallen in and drowned. Why me? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Am I leaving anything behind? What did I bring with me? Uh, papers? Insurance? Yeah. Yeah, I got them. A little wet, but... Boy, it's pneumonia for sure. There must be a rag or something in the car I can dry my hair with. Oh, no. Yaffe Kush's gun. i got to get rid of it. There. It takes care of that. i got to get out of here. I was groggy, half-drowned with my head split by somebody's feeble attempt at brain surgery. On the highway, heading back to L.A., I was swerving from side to side. I could barely see the road. But somehow, I made it back to the El Cairo. I must have, because I came to, stretched out on the overstuffed sofa, covered with warm blankets and supporting an ice bag on my aching skull. Beth was watching me anxiously. She tried to smile, but wasn't very successful. Dean? Oh, girl, oh, what time is it? Not quite three. In the morning. How did I get here? Where's your car? Lie back. Now, I thought you'd had an accident. The car's fine. I've got to hide it. Hide it? What, what for? What happened? Did you run someone over with the car? Jeannie, what happened to your head? You look awful. Thanks. I thought I'd change my hairstyle, widen the part. Stella, did you see Yaffe Kush at the club tonight? Was he around? No. Did he beat you up? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. Dean, tell me what happened with the car. I'll tell you after I move it. No, you stay put. You're in no condition to drive. I'll move it. Where do you want it? Well, uh, see if there's a space in the bushes. 
Well, that's dumb. Go on, move it. Do as he says, Stella, dear. Well, all right. I was spaced out by Zia's death. In a way, I never believed she was real. But her dead body was real enough. I couldn't explain Zia to Beth, so I didn't try. Instead, I only told her what I had walked into at Palm Springs. Did the uh, killers take the money? I don't know. I, I really don't. I was too scared to even think about it. I didn't even look in her car. Are you going to the police? I guess. Tell them what I know. Well, it was first I had to see Walden. They might go looking for him. Where will you find him at this time of night? Yeah. I guess I'll wait till morning. You got any aspirin? Walden was pretty upset when I told him. Upset, angry, evasive, and frightened. I wash my hands of the whole thing, understand? But, uh, Dean, uh, try to make it as easy on me and the office, uh, will you? I won't promise. It's my neck. Now, if the police think I'm broke, uh, bum, they'll give me a hard time. But if you back me up and say that I work for you, legitimately, uh, I'll be careful what I say. I'll do it. I'll do it. Outside Walden's office was one of those little coin boxes that sell newspapers. The late morning edition carried the headline. Foreign beauty slain in pool. Not much about Zia. The medical examiner hadn't determined as yet if she died by strangulation or drowning, but he set the time of death at approximately 8 p.m. There were signs of a fight, and an unidentified gun had been found outside the house. Nothing stolen from the house, and nothing about finding 250 grand in the car. I decided to go back to Beth's and have a drink. Uh, uh, hold it. He just walked in. Dean, you're wanted on the phone. Oh, great timing. Hello. This is Quinn. Uh, who is this? Ain't important to know, but what I got to say is, you listening? I'm listening. You've been lucky, but don't push it too far. Who, me? I just blew into town. Oh, I know. I've been reading the papers. I see where maybe you ain't talked to anyone yet, which is a uh, very smart thing to do, not to talk to anybody about your uh, swimming partner. But the cops will be looking for me. My fingerprints are all over the place. I don't want to have to do nothing drastic if I can help it. Too much of a coincidence, you know? Yes, I know. So here's what you do. You tell the cops you arrived at the house at four in the afternoon. You were there just long enough to get her to sign a floater insurance policy. They already found an airplane ticket in her purse for Hawaii and points was good for next week. She needed a policy to protect her stuff on the trip. A guy named Herman Spender drove you down. I don't know any Herman Spender. You do now. Besides, another guy driving an ace laundry truck saw you. You're out of the jam, Quinn. There's no sweat. Maybe I ought to just leave town. I don't like it here much anyway. Oh, you're stupid. You're stupid, Quinn. If the cops don't find you, I do. And you wouldn't want anything to happen to that big, gorgeous redhead, would you? You wouldn't. <laughs> you care to try me? No. Of course you wouldn't.
I had a strong hunch the phone call was from Yaffe Kush. He could have gotten Beth's number when he came by and set the fire. Some boy scout he'd make. Well, if it was Kush, he could rip off Beth and me whenever he wanted. We were sitting ducks. Unless there was some way I could convince him that he needed us around. After some of her usual hemming and hawing, Stella gave me Kush's home address. An apartment on Wilshire. A houseboy let me into the Wilshire apartment. A very plush pad indeed. Yaffe Kush and two men were playing gin. Well, look who's here. Mark Spitz. Mr. Kush, sir, did you phone me this morning? Me? Phone you? I think you should know that I've written out a complete report. Everything I know about Ziamonte's murder. A person you don't know will turn it over to the sheriff if anything happens to me or Beth Temple. <laughs> Why are you telling me? It's none of my business. Hey, you know, I got a hunch, though. You keep your nose clean, nothing's going to happen to you or your girlfriend. Say, do you play bridge? Oh, sometimes. I'm not very good. Hey, you guys, we got a fourth for bridge. Uh, Quinn, meet Herman Spender. He's the one with the uh, with the red face. The other one is Frankie Amador. He owns Ace Laundry Company. Uh, sit down. I'd really like to stay, but I shouldn't be here after 8 o'clock. Someone who knows where I am might start wondering. Are you bluffing? Yeah, maybe not. All right, Quinn. Beat it. I don't want to see your mug in here again. Dean, the news is on TV. Okay, coming. This is Ken Jones with the Late Night News. With us is Riverside County Sheriff Richard Durham, who will give us the latest developments concerning the murder of Florenzia Monte in Palm Springs. Sheriff, has the gun found at the scene of the murder been identified yet? Uh, not yet, Ken. We've had several other important news breaks. We located a safety deposit box in Palm Springs under Miss Monty's name and got a court order to open it. Inside it, we found three United States passports in the names of Ramona Randa, Constance Niles, and Helen Martin. Helen Martin? I knew it. But none for Florencia Monte? Uh, no. Uh, we have determined that two of them were forgeries. The Helen Martin passport is authentic. Is it your theory, Sheriff, that Florencia was using these other names as an alias? You better believe she was. Well, we can't prove it yet. Uh, however, we also found two paid-up annuities, each for $250,000. One is made out to Helen Martin, the other to Ramona Randall. And none for Constance Niles? Well, I've got that one, and you're not getting it. Uh, no. Please, Dean, I can't hear. We haven't found an annuity for Constance Niles yet. Uh, but we want to know more about Miss Monty. She was in this country on an Italian passport, supposedly on business. We intend to find out more about both her personal and business affairs. Sheriff, you mentioned another development just before we went on. Yes. Miss Monty also maintained a house in Los Angeles. All the phones in the house were bugged. That does it. Does what? Zia Monty was Helen Martin. Helen's was the only authentic passport in the bunch. If Zia had been able to buy that annuity for Constance Niles from me, she'd have had an income of about 30000 a year for life, including the annuities made out to Helen Martin and Ramona Ronda. But where did Zia, or Helen, get the bread to live like she did and, and still stash away three-quarters of a million dollars to buy the annuities? Dean, do you think there might be a bug on my phone? Oh, don't be silly. Who'd bug your phone? That man who called and threatened you. The next afternoon, the phone company sent a man out to check Beth's phone. No taps, of course. It was clean. 
I watched the repairman dial the automatic ringback number to show the line was working again. Then, that night, I went to work, but Kilroy didn't show up at the club. The manager said Kilroy had quit that day and wasn't coming back. I started jockeying the cars by myself, but as the evening wore on and Stella didn't appear, I began to worry. Finally, I parked a car by a fire plug, jumped in a taxi, and went back to El Cairo. I looked around, trying to spot Yaffe's car on the street. I didn't see it. Best bungalow was dark, except for one lamp in the living room. I made like a scout and peeped through the window. Beth and Stella were seated in front of the television set. I heaved a sigh of relief and went in. I knocked off early. Well, say something. I'll say it for them, Quinn. Welcome home. I knew it wouldn't be long before Yaffe and one of his gorillas came by. Spender, the guy with the red face, had to be the ugliest guy of all time. But I wasn't about to inform him of that fact. Yaffe Cush was no beauty himself, but at least you wouldn't expect to see him swinging through trees on a vine. Good to see you, Quinn. It's good to see you too, Mr. Cush. <laughs> well, it looks like you've got your four for bridge. I guess I'll be moving along. Spender. Oh, wow. Mr. Cush. Oh. That's not nice. Oh, shut up, you ding-a-ling. Oh, darling, you're hurt. Let me help you up. That's all right. I needed some dental work anyway. Oh, Queen, Queen, that wasn't smart to plant my rod for the fuzz to find. It was clean, never used on a job. I even had a permit for it. Gun? The one I keep in the glove compartment of my car. You and that other grease jockey were the only ones who could get to it. I, uh... I seen him this afternoon. He sang a whole opera. Why did you try to frame me for that Monty brought? Who, me? It was a mistake, Queen. A big mistake. Spender? You and that Monty floozy, both a couple of double-crossing thieves. You had it coming. Right, Spender? Stop that! Let me go! Relax, lady. Why are you looking at your watch, Quinn? You ain't going no place ever again. Well, in that case, I better call Sheriff Durham and tell him not to bother to call me at midnight like I told him to. Hey, put that phone down. Spencer! Stop it this instant! Lady, you gotta learn to relax. Hang up the phone, Spender. Quinn. Oh, Quinn, I'm afraid that was your last mistake. Sheriff, Yaffe Kush is here. Got a gun. Get, get, oh. Oh, forget it, Spender. It's sour. The sheriff knows we're here. Let's get out of here. Well, it's not funny. Durham never called. I, I dialed a four-number code. When I hung up, the phone automatically rings back. See? <laughs> I saw the repairman do it this morning. <laughs> as soon as I was in condition to get up off the floor, which was early morning, I lost no time getting down to Palm Springs to see Sheriff Durham. I told him all I knew, really leveled. Well, we just got confirmation on your alibi from the gas station attendant in Indio. 
And uh, don't forget, I drove out to the club to get Cush's gun, which took me about another half hour. It was nearly 9.30 when I got to Zia's place. Mm -hmm. What you've told me, Quinn, should clear you, and it fits in with what we've already pieced together. Helen Martin, a.k.a. Zia Monte. She was a courier for the mob. Really? A sweet little girl, I mean, girl like that? Right. She met those syndicate characters in Europe when she was going to school there. They set her up as a front to invest black money. Uh, illegal funds. Got her papers in Rome as Florenzia Monte to represent their investment coming over here. All supposedly legit. So the government couldn't trace the money. Where it came from. And they bugged her phones because they didn't trust her? They don't trust anyone. Florenzia Monte got the idea to uh, do some skimming. Disappear with her own annuities. When the big bosses found out, Yaffe Kush got his orders to stop her. And he did. But don't worry about him. That's been taken care of. Oh, boy, oh, that's the best news I've heard in a long time. On my way back from Palm Springs, I stopped in at Walden's office to let him know everything worked out, and he was off the hook. So you see, Mr. Walden, Florencia Monte was Helen Martin. She blew the whole thing because she was the missing heiress all along. She just got hung up in her own greed. Uh, Mr. Walden, are you listening? Jack of diamonds, ten of clubs, jack of clubs. Do you see this, Quinn? Do you see? I've done it. Well, congratulations. I win, I win. And I owe it all to you. Look what deck I used. <laughs> Get a load of that queen of spades. <laughs> Is this letter for me? Oh, yes, I forgot about that. It's been sitting here for a few days. Well, keep plugging away, Mr. Walden. If I had the time, I'd stay and teach you how to play cribbage. Yeah. Goodbye. When I got back to El Cairo Court, the girls were waiting for me. Beth nearly fractured my bruised ribs hugging me. And then I told them what Sheriff Durham had already figured out. But what about Yaffe Kush? Will he talk? You know, confess? Well, Durham thinks so, because Yaffe did find the 250 grand in the trunk of the car and held out. Didn't tell his bosses. That's why he didn't want me to talk. Let the news out. He figures he's got a better chance to survive with Sheriff Durham than he does with the mob. He seemed like such a nice guy. In such a gorgeous car. Well, I suppose you'll be going back to New York. Yeah, me too. I'm tired of selling cigarettes. I'm going to be a social worker. Oh, and wreck what's left of the Big Apple? Well, Stella, you can have it. I don't really want to be a lawyer anyway. What will you do? Oh, I don't know, girl. Oh, I thought maybe I'd go into apartment management. Oh, Dean, how romantic. Oh, we can scratch out a living some way. Beth, you're the only girl for me. Ow, you're hurting me. What's this? This envelope in your pocket. It, it was sticking me. What, this? Oh, I completely forgot about it. Yeah, it's postmarked uh, Morro Bay. Stats of birth certificates. Beth, get that old photograph. Edgar Ryan and the two guys with him. Oh, you mean the one with Ed, Hack, and Tony on the back? Right. Um, it's right here. Well, what did you say your mother's maiden name was? Tully. Josephine Tully. Why? Girl, oh, you have just answered the $100,000 question. Do you know who this Tony is? The one with Edgar and Henry Ryan? No, who? He's Anthony Tully, your grandfather. Half-brother to Edgar Ryan. That makes you Edgar Ryan's half 
grandniece. <laughs> His only surviving heir. <laughs> oh, you're worth a fortune. And just when I was going to make you a poor but honest woman. Oh, girl oh. Oh, boy Now, be careful. Hey, anyone here know where I can borrow the money for bus fare to New York? That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Dumas Ballinger's The Air Hunters. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. The Air Hunters was written by Bill S. Ballinger. Ken Berry was Dean. Joanne Worley was Beth. And Edgar Bergen was Walden. Featured in the cast were Valerie Perrine as Stella, Peter Lees as Yathi, Roger Perry as Durham, and Ken Jones as the newscaster. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Michelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again. Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. <laughs>